Did you ever hear the expression, too much of a good thing? Too much of a good thing? It's not saying that good things are, are bad or um, anything like that. It's simply saying, I think the implication is, is that uh, there's a situation in which a good thing has been had uh, beyond its balance, or at least the way our human condition has received it is we've lost balance in the receiving of the good thing. So you can commonly think of a child who uh, kind of has a very special day from sun up to sundown. Oftentimes by sundown, they've disintegrated uh, because they've had too much of a good thing. Um, that has to be in balance, right? But it can happen, and certainly it happens, I think, as often in adults as it does in children. It's just part of our human condition that if there's a good thing, sometimes I think our... Our, our dog, okay? Here's an example. We had this box of pretzels, chocolate-covered pretzels for Thanksgiving that I bought. I was very eager to eat them. I was excited all day to eat them. And I came in late in the day, and I think I had broke the seal, and maybe somebody had had one or two, but I come in, and I find an empty bucket on the floor. Our dog had too much of a good thing. He, it was beyond bounds that he, he, she ate the whole, the whole bucket of chocolate-covered pretzels. And we, uh, we have a tendency to do that, to take things beyond their proper measure. I think of um, wealth, too much of a good thing. It, you can have so much wealth that you can forget that life is lived by faith um, because it can cover up... Uh, it can mask areas that only faith really provide. Um, here's an idea, in our, even in our culture, the idea of liberty, the American idea of liberty, you can have too much of a good thing. When our entire framework becomes uh, focused on liberty, we can forget all the other things that good government and society are made to do, of which the preservation of liberty is just one. So you can have too much of a good thing. And these ideas, they, they follow us even into the church. There is oftentimes where you can have a truth of the word that's true and is good, but if not held in tension, it can be too much of a good thing. So this morning we're going to read a, a passage. It, it is a troubling passage um, in the Gospel of Luke that comes from the mouth of Christ. We're going to read a passage from him, and I want you to hear it as though maybe he's responding to a perception of people around him that maybe they've had too much of a good thing, or their understanding is, is out of balance with what the whole teaching of God is. So that's what we'll be doing this morning. Let's pray. Lord, guide us in your word. Remind us that it's true and apply it to our hearts, Lord. Make us open to your spirit and subject it to the spirit as Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let me read. Um, it's only several verses. Uh, chapter 12, verse 49 through 53. Jesus says this. I have come to bring fire on the earth. And how I wish it were already kindled. 
but I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is completed. Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No. I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five in one family, divided against each other, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother in law against daughter in law, and daughter in law against mother in law. Merry Christmas. It is ironic that uh, just the calendar of, of, of Scripture brings us to this passage at this time of year because it flies in the face, not only of our music, but of the very Holy Scripture from which the music derives. So he says, do, do you actually think I came to bring peace on the earth? To which I think we would say, well, yeah, <laughs> I mean, didn't the word actually say it? Remember, same gospel, same gospel writer, Luke chapter 2, the angel appears to the shepherds and says, I have it right here, I'll read it to you. Suddenly, a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to men on whom his favor Isaiah chapter 9, speaking of the advent of our Lord and Savior, says this, And he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Do not the scriptures call us to seek peace when it can be made? To seek, make every effort, Hebrews 12, make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. I want to call this a counter-message. Okay, so this is not a contradictory message of Christ. This is a counter-message of Christ. Imagine that he's trying to balance something, some expectation or understanding of, of his coming and his ministry that is off-kilter among the people. And so he's coming in with a counter-message that's going to try to kind of anchor it back into the deeper truth of, of, of who he is and what he means. And I, I certainly think that we as the church uh, today have a need for that as they did here. But that's what's happening here is Jesus is not forgetting why he came. He's not changing his mind. Certainly the author, Luke, is not making a mistake. He's aware of everything that he's been writing in his entire gospel. This is Jesus bringing a counter message to us. Even a correct even a correct truth sometimes needs to be held in tension. Right? A correct truth, if we say it, sometimes we can grab one truth and say it so many times that it actually becomes false by the way we live it. Because we live one idea in exclusion of all the other ideas. This is, by the way, in marriages, the difference between loving a spouse and enabling a spouse. Or in friendships, between love and enabling is one, we take one, one virtue to excess. It's too much of a good thing. And we have it here. There needs to be, in the Word, a discipline about ideas. We have the tendency of grabbing words like peace and love and being very undisciplined with them, and they are powerful words. 
They're words that need to be very carefully dealt with and cared for. And this is what the Lord's doing, I think. In this counter-message that Christ is bringing, he's establishing this tension of the truth of what his peace really is, and he's establishing this sense of what, when we say things and when we look to Christ, what, what do we really want and desire from him? And he opens with this word. And I want us to begin... In 49, you know, we'll probably spend most of our time in 49 and 50 because if you're like me, you've skipped it your whole life. I, once again, I discover new passages in the Bible. And I think oftentimes we will kind of go right down to verses uh, 51 through 53 about division in the family and we'll say, okay, I got the teaching. The teaching is I need to love Jesus more than I love my family or more than I love things that are close and intimate to me. And, and certainly, right, there's the teaching. That's what's on the right side of the equal sign as far as what's happening here. But how do we get there? What happens inside of us to make any of that possible? That is in 49 and 50, I believe. Which is just as difficult. Verse 49, I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. What is he talking about? Fire on the earth. I have come so that fire would rain down on the earth. And then he expresses emotion about it and how I long for the fact that we're already started. It's judgment. Fire is judgment, the Bible, right? If you look in the Bible, fire is judgment. Sodom and Gomorrah, how are they destroyed? Fire. In Egypt, when the Israelites were in bondage, what was one of the ways that God displayed his power of judgment over the Egyptians? Through fire from the sky. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, how were they judged? They were thrown into the fiery furnace. At the end of time, the devil, that ancient dragon, will be thrown into the lake of fire. Hell is a place of fire. The parable of Lazarus and the rich man. The rich man cries out to Lazarus from the fires of hell, it says. At some level, Jesus is talking about judgment here. How I wish that the fires of judgment were already being kindled upon the earth. There's a, there's a, there, there's a second side of, of this that I want us to spend some time on. Because the fire does mean judgment, but, and I don't want to call that negative, right? God's judgment is pure and perfect. So I don't want to call it negative, but there is a more affectionate side of it, which we might call refining. Do we not see the images of of fire in Scripture in the way he refines his own? So in the the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, the Lord comes to Isaiah. In the presence of the Lord, Isaiah just falls over. And he moans, and he's distraught to his deepest being. And he says, woe is me, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean hearts. 
He's thinking, how? There's no possible way that this holy God can be in fellowship with me because of just the presence of God's brilliance exposes everything about his life and his people. And what does the Lord do? An angel brings a hot coal and it brings it down and brands the lips of Isaiah. Why? So that Isaiah can speak the truth of God. It's this, it's this image, this beautiful image of the Lord not excusing Isaiah. The Lord doesn't look down on the people with unclean lips and unclean hearts and just excuse it like, ah, it's okay. He doesn't do that with Isaiah. He agrees with Isaiah. He says, you do have unclean lips, but I am going to use you. And the way I'm going to use you is I'm going to refine you as fire does. When Moses, in the third chapter of Exodus, stumbles upon the presence of God on the mountain, he sees him, the Lord is depicted as a bush that is consumed with a fire, though not a consuming bush, right? The bush, the bush flourishes amidst a consuming fire. In that image, God is, is presenting to his people this idea that I am an absolute, holy, and pure one. In me, there is nothing that, that could survive, that, that would otherwise be destroyed by the fire. Fire destroys things, but him, his life inside the fire. There's nothing, there's nothing about the Lord that the fire has any power of judgment over. He's perfectly refined. This is how purity and refinement is the other side of judgment. Sometimes in the word, the discipline of our own how we care for one another and putting someone out of the fellowship is turning them over to Satan so that they might be saved, almost like, almost like you're snatching them from the fire. The word talks about how, you know, even someone can have a, a you know, if they have a mediocre faith, like when, the, when, when God's judgment comes and, and it burns up everything, it'll leave only what's left. And, when, you know, when the refining fires of judgment come and they burn, well, all that will be left is us with our pure measure of faith. Pentecost. What happened to Pentecost? It's a sense that the Spirit chose to move and it was just like the tongues of fire entered into the apostles and it's from that purity that they spoke. They did not speak on their own behalf. The, the, the vision or the image that we have here in the 12th chapter is that our Lord is on a mission of global judgment. He has to come in order to purify the earth. That is, Christ is coming to make all things new. Christ is coming to defeat death and eradicate sin. And this verse, uncomfortable in the way he frames it, is a countering, a countering teaching to a group of people who have gotten it wrong. Some of you may say to me, wait a second, John 3.16, he did not come to judge. Right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. And you're right. 
I'll even throw in verse 17. Helps your case. It says this, for, the son, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And so you're saying, he didn't come to judge, he came to save. If you're going to talk about saving, what are they being saved from? What is salvation if Christ is not saving us from something? Remind yourself, it is a counter message. It is to be placed in balance with the whole countenance of God's word. But I, I do want to say this. If, if you can imagine the Jewish expectation of what a Messiah is, you might begin to appreciate a little bit of why Jesus might be going in this direction. Because their understanding and expectation of a Messiah was a Savior that would come and save them from themselves. No. A Savior that would come and save them from external oppression from some other people group or empire or situations or circumstances that are outside of themselves. That's what it was. That's what they were expecting. All too often, that's where their minds would kind of resolve or kind of descend into was, it's not about us. This is about what the Messiah is going to do on our behalf. And what the Messiah is going to do on their behalf had nothing to do with what's inside of them. It had to do with all the obvious brokenness that's in the world around them. Even the Pharisees, who had a sense that they weren't holy, had gotten to a place where they said they are now righteous and the rest of the world is unholy. That was their mindset. That's how they understood the salvation of the Messiah. That the Messiah is somehow a partisan king who simply likes you more. And then he's going to judge everyone else, right? And I know, it's my experience and yours, that all too often our discomfort and frustration in life, we externalize. We blame on others or other things. So our life would be just fine if we were saved from this situation or that relationship or something like that. We even have the tendency now, above all things, what a statement on our society now, that every single sin that's part of our soul, we now diagnose as an illness. It's external to us. We're not in need of salvation for ourselves. We are in need of being saved from stuff that just is around us and on us. We experience the same Jewish heresy. This is the beauty of the fire, right? The fire of God, when it comes down, it does judge all that is not of the Lord. But to those who are in Christ, it refines. So when the Holy Spirit, which is shown as a fire, descends into, your, into you, it, it's almost as though for the believer that we live out the judgment of God in this life. Because the Spirit comes into us, and does the Spirit say, you're just wonderful, and I'm so glad to be here? And I just love to stretch out in this wonderful temple that you've prepared for me? That's not what happens, right? The Spirit of God comes into us and then begins to burn things up. 
It identifies things in your spirit that are not right. And it says, I cannot abide that. That cannot be in the same room as me. That I am, I live and flourish amidst a consuming fire, but I have to consume these other things in your spirit because I'm making you new. I'm making you to be something new. I'm not just tweaking. I am consuming and refining. This still may sound very dark for some of us, right? I mean, first of all, it's Christmas. So Jesus came to save the world, and here he's saying, I came to judge the world. But he says this other thing in the 50th verse. And I'll say, it's worth going slow through 49 and 50, because then 51 through 53 can minister in their own way. But he says this. So he says, how I long, how I long to bring righteous judgment on the earth. How I deeply desire that if already, if the kindling was already started, if the flames ever so small, if I could just blow on the small flames to make it bigger, how nice that would be. But he says, but that cannot happen. He says, because I have first a baptism to undergo and how distressed I am until it is completed. Well, by the way, Jesus is already baptized. So he's not talking about the baptism of John. He's talking about his crucifixion and his resurrection. So we have this situation that Christ is, as if we can, at least we can try, try to imagine having the eyes of Christ for a second. Pure eyes that see everything exactly as they are. And look into each one of us, and he sees the image of God in such a way that he loves us, but he sees the defamation of that image in so many ways that he grieves and knows that that has to be dealt with. So imagine you have the eyes of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, and you come to earth, and you open your eyes, and everywhere you see, all you see is is things crying out for purification and judgment. You see brokenness and sin and wickedness and loneliness and lostness everywhere you look. In every life you look, every, every soul, if you had the eyes of Christ, every single heart and soul that you'd ever look in, you'd see areas that just needed to be obliterated so that the image of Christ could be redeemed. That's everywhere. That is, that's, his, that's his world. His world is to look on a person and see a need for judgment. That's his world. How can he not? Which one of us? Who could present themselves before the Lord undefiled that he could look on us and say, you're beautiful. Everything about us that's beautiful was made by him. And so you have this, in one hand you have Christ who when he opens his eyes and looks upon the world, he sees a world that is in dire need of judgment. If he's going to take this earth and all that's in it and make it perfect again, he has to judge everyone, every single person. And how can this God who desires to have a world and and a people that are right with him not desire for it to be brought into judgment? But then you have this second idea. There's this second idea that's saying, and to me this is so, so beautiful and frustrating. 
at least for Christ, is he sees a world that's in judgment. In other words, he sees the verdict. The verdict is the world has to be judged, and yet the sentence is, I have to bear it. How I long for this world to be judged rightly. And then he says, but it cannot happen until I bear the sentence for it. You have the same eyes that see all of the lostness and brokenness is the same, same person that knows I need to go to a place that no one else can go and pay the penalty for all of this. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. That Jesus Christ came not because we were worthy, but because we were wholly unworthy and unable. And he came not to save you because you were valuable in and of yourselves, but because what God put in you, he has chosen to love. And so he's died and paid the penalty. He, through his great distress, took the baptism of God's wrath and was raised again so that we might actually have a hope of a refining fire and not the fires of judgment. The whole earth is called to repentance. There is not a person in this room that is not commanded to repent before the throne of God. He is king. He will sit on the judgment seat of the universe and will bring righteous judgment down. And for some it will feel and be as the fires of judgment, and for others, it will be as a refining fire. You know that in your spirit now, how your spirit is discontent. Those of you in Christ, how your spirit is discontent. Those of you who are on the way towards Christ, this is how you know, by the way. If you're outside and yet your spirit has this, this weariness of discontent about who you are or how things is, I'm here to tell you it's because the Lord is climbing in and is indicting you and calling you to himself. The Spirit comes in, and it works on us, and it burns up things that cannot be there. And it's from this that we get this teaching. Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No. I tell you but division. From now on, there will be five in a family, divided against each other, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. How can the Lord be in us and be at peace with things that are not right? There is a moment in the prophets where you get the feeling that the prophets are crying out against the people because things are not good, and the people say, relax, it's peaceful. It's peaceful. At one point, the prophet yells, you keep saying peace. How can you say peace when there is no peace? What has happened in us, in our lives, in our relationships with people and objects is we have, 
we have made peace with the earth. That's what we've done. In small ways and in large ways, we've made peace with, with wearisome or wicked ways, or we've made peace with certain relationships. We've just, let's just keep the peace. Let's just keep the peace. Let's, well, I guess tell you that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a fire that's going to come down and judge the earth. And when it comes into us, there is no place. It cannot abide with that kind of worldly peace. God did not come to make us get along with one another. God came to reconcile us to his throne. The peace that Jesus talks about is the peace between him and us. And until we have that, we will be at enmity with God or at enmity with our brothers. Uh, I'll close with, with, with a few Here's some ways I think we get this wrong. We see a teaching like this and we think we need to reject things. We need to reject things, right? The Lord came to bring division and we're thinking we've been making peace with this far too long. We need to reject this thing. And we say we need to reject this thing and intuitively think because that thing is bad. That thing is bad. Which, do you see what we just did, by the way? We just externalized the problem once again. We don't need to reject things. We need to deny ourselves. All too often when this happens, what, what we do is Christ comes in and convicts us about something, and, and obviously there are things we need to reject. Okay, don't do bad stuff. I'm saying in the world where you sin is because you've had too much of a good thing. Okay? So... There's a, a relationship of two unbelieving people. One, the wife comes to know Jesus Christ. Now she's figuring it out, and now the, her world is looking different than her husband's world. And now the challenge is, what can I reject and what can I accept about my husband? And the frustration can become, like, everything he does is wrong. Everything he does is wrong, or everything she does is wrong, and that kind of the spiritual asymmetry, to which the Lord would say, I'm stepping between the marriage. I mean, I will be between the marriage. The Lord is saying that. Jesus Christ steps between every one of our relationships until we deny ourselves whatever we were needing. Take up the cross and follow him. And then Christ becomes the way through which we love every one of our relationships. In this life, when you receive Christ and when he works in you and things don't go well around you, do not think the gospel has failed. That is the consequences of the gospel. After all, did not Jesus Christ ride in and triumph on a donkey as the salvific king of a people six days before he hung on a cross? The gospel does not bring peace among people who do not want peace with God. I hope this calls you to decision. At some level, whether the Lord is encountering you in some place in your life where he's saying, why do you continue to put that in my throne room? Just imagine the kinds of things we set up beside the throne of God. 
mean, when I think of it, when I think of it in that way, it just breaks my heart. When I think of the things I've done in God's throne room, to say, I want to worship you, but I want that alongside of it. And I, God cannot abide that. He's saying, do you think I came to make peace between me and that? I did not. I just want to charge you this morning. Is there places where the Lord needs to encounter you, has the right to encounter you, and say, that has to be dealt with? Or maybe the Lord is just encountering you for the first real time. Maybe you've yet to bow to the Lord or, or call out to him as Lord and Savior. Or, or you've wanted, the whole reason you've gone to him is for a false reason. Lord, I'm coming to you so that you make my relationships peaceful and make all of that work out. I'm coming to you so that you make my life more comfortable because my life is not at peace. And you haven't yet embraced the kind of peace that God offers and the kind of peace that you may never experience in this life. In a moment, the praise team is going to come up and uh, we're going to bow in prayer. We're going to take time. And I just want to encourage you to be with the Lord, to respond to the Lord in, in the places that you need to respond. Have you had too much of a good thing? Let's pray. Lord, we do know that your salvation is redemptive, Father, that it involves making us new, that you are not compromising on your presence. You're not compromising on the measure of holiness required for fellowship or oneness with you. You've made no compromise in this world but you have made sacrifice. And so, Lord, we point to that right now. We point to the cross. We point to the work of Christ. We point to the one who saw, saw us in our sin and yet underwent the baptism of your wrath. Lord, and we know that you call us to do the same. that in our relationships with people and with things that we are called to deny ourselves, sacrifice this temporary pleasure for your eternal unfading joy. And so we, we ask, Lord, you would change our affections, make us desire good and rightful things, that you would strengthen us with your spirit, that which you would give us friends in the faith to walk alongside that would encourage us. Lord, I pray over the lonely people in this room. Father, I pray that you would, you would deal with that and bring them into warm fellowship. Lord, I pray over those who are idolatrously caught in relationships because they cannot, they cannot embrace a world without someone else. Lord, I pray that you would enter in and that you would become the Lord of our lives. In that sense, Lord, we welcome your fire. Lord, we even ask for it. 
that you would make us right and pure. And then we would know your peace. In Jesus' name, amen.